0: Good morning and welcome to the Sheldonian Theatre, delighted that so many of you have come today. Um, The 21st Century School, of which I'm the director of, is working on the great changes of the 21st century. One of the things we've come to realize is that, as George Soros has said, uncertainty is pervasive. Um, We are no better at predicting the future now than we were in the 1950s and a thick fog, such as that we've had this morning, affects airlines in the same way as it did in the 1950s. So unfortunately, uh, Soros' plane was diverted to Bristol. He is on his way, Uh, as you might have picked up in the news this morning, he was in Copenhagen last night where he was working on a $100 billion fund for developing countries uh, to address climate needs. So I think uh, we recognize that he needed to be in Copenhagen last night. Uh, We expect him here at about 11, between 11.30 and 11.45. But the show will go on, uh, and we hope that we will keep you uh, intellectually uh, challenged over this period. And as soon as he arrives, he will uh, address you. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin with a 10-minute audio of uh, his recent talk on reflexivity, which will provide the context for what uh, he would have said, I think, and uh, give you some of the perspectives that he would offer us. And then we'll move to the panel discussion uh, on that. And then as soon as he arrives, uh, we'll break. The VC will come up and introduce him. So let's begin with the audio of George Cyrus speaking in Budapest uh, a few weeks ago.
1: In the course of, of my life, I've developed a conceptual framework which has helped me both in make money, making money as a hedge fund manager and in spending it as a policy-oriented philanthropist. But the framework itself is not about money. It's about the relationship between thinking and reality, a subject that is extensively studied by philosophers from early on. <clears throat> I started developing my philosophy as a student at the London School of Economics in the late 1950s. I took my final exams one year early, and I had a year to fill before I was qualified to receive my degree. I could choose my own tutor, and I chose Karl Popper, uh, whose uh, book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, had made a profound impression on me. In his books, Popper argued that the uh, empirical truth can't be known with absolute certainty. Even scientific laws can't be verified beyond the shadow of a doubt. They can only be falsified by testing. One failed test is enough to, to falsify, but no amount of confirming instances is sufficient to verify. Scientific laws are hypothetical in character and their truth remains subject to to testing. Ideologies which claim to be in possession of the ultimate truth are making a false claim. Therefore, they can be imposed on society only by force. This applies to communism, fascism, and national socialism alike. All these ideologies lead to repression. Popper proposed a more attractive form of social organization, a society, an open society in which people are free to hold diver, divergent opinions, and the rule of law allows people with different views and different interests to live together in peace. Having lived through both Nazi and communist occupation here in Hungary, I found the idea of an open society immensely attractive. While I was reading Popper, I was also studying economic theory and I was struck by the contradiction between Popper's emphasis on imperfect understanding and the theory of perfect competition in economics, which postulated perfect knowledge. This led me to start questioning the assumptions of economic theory. These were the two major theoretical inspirations of my philosophy. So here it goes. Today I shall explain the concept of of fallibility and reflexivity in general terms. Tomorrow I shall apply them to the financial markets and after that to politics. That will also bring in the concept of open society. In the fourth lecture, I shall explore the difference between market values and moral values. And in the fifth, I shall give some predictions and prescriptions for the present moment in history. I can state the core idea in two relatively simple propositions. One is that the situation that has thinking participants, the participant's view of the world, is always partial and distorted. That's the principle of fallibility. The other is that these distorted views can influence the situation to which they relate because false views lead to inappropriate actions. That's the principle of reflexivity. For instance, treating drug addicts as criminals creates criminal behavior. It misconstrues the problem and interferes with the proper treatment of addicts. As another example, declaring that government is bad tends to make for bad government. Both fallibility and reflexivity are sheer common sense. So when my critics say that I am merely stating the obvious, they are right, up to a point. What makes my propositions interesting is that their significance has not been generally appreciated. The concept of reflexivity in particular has been studiously avoided and even denied by economic theory. So, my conceptual framework deserves to be taken seriously, not because it constitutes a new discovery, but because something as commonsensical as reflexivity has been so studiously ignored. Recognizing reflexivity has been sacrificed to the vain pursuit of certainty in human affairs, most most, uh, notably in economics and yet, uncertainty is the key feature of human affairs. Economic theory is built on the concept of equilibrium, and that concept is in direct contradiction with the concept of reflexivity. As I shall try to show in the next lecture, the two concepts yield to two entirely different interpretations of financial markets. The concept of fallibility is far less controversial. It's generally recognized that the complexity of the world in which we live exceeds our capacity to comprehend it. I have no great new insights to offer. The main source of difficulty is that participants are part of the situation they have to deal with. Confronted by a reality of extreme complexity, we are obliged to resort to various methods of simplification, generalizations, dichotomies, metaphors, uh, decision rules, moral precepts, to mention just a few. These mental constructs take on an existence of their own, further complicating the situation. The structure of the brain is another source of distortions. Recent advances in brain science have begun to provide some insight into how the brain functions and they have substantiated Hume's contention that reason is the slave of passion. The idea of a disembodied intellect or reason is a figment of our imagination. The brain is bombarded by millions of sensory impulses, uh, but consciousness can only uh, uh, process only seven or eight subjects concurrently. The impulses need to be condensed, uh, ordered and interpreted under immense time pressure, and mistakes and distortions can't be avoided. Brain science adds many new details to my original contention that our understanding of the world in which we live is inherently imperfect. The concept of reflexivity needs a little more explanation. It applies exclusively to situations that have thinking participants. The participant's thinking serves two functions. One is to understand the world in which we live. I call this the cognitive function. The other is to change the situation to our advantage. I call this the the manipulating uh, uh, or participating function. The two functions connect thinking and reality in opposite directions. In the cognitive function, reality is supposed to determine the participants' views. The direction of causation is from the world to the mind. By contrast, in the manipulative function, the direction of causation is from the mind to the world. That is to say, the intentions of the participants have an effect on the world. When both functions operate at the same time, they can interfere with each other. How? By depriving each function of the independent variable, that would be needed to determine the value of the dependent variable. Because when the independent variable of one function is the dependent variable of the other, neither function has a genuinely independent variable. This means that the cognitive function can't produce enough knowledge to serve as the basis of the participants' decisions. Similarly, the manipulative function can, can have an effect on the outcome, but can't determine it. In other words, the outcome is liable to diverge from the participant's intentions. There is bound to be some slippage between intentions and actions and further slippage uh, between actions and outcomes. As a result, there is an element of uncertainty both in our understanding of reality and in the actual course of events.
0: Good. Well, I'm delighted to be joined on the stage by a group of people who I think uh, I could wish for no better in thinking about uh, Soros' ideas and helping us understand what they uh, mean for different disciplines and, of course, for the University of Oxford. Uh, I'd like to first ask uh, Professor Roger Goodman, who uh, himself is a professor of Japanese studies, uh, but is also now the head of the social sciences division uh, at the University of Oxford, uh, to begin uh, with his comments and reflections on uh, Soros' ideas.
2: Well, uh, thank you very much. It's a slightly unusual experience to be sitting here next to a chair that's (laughs) empty. It's a bit like a Malcolm Bradbury novel uh, scene. But um, let me just comment a bit on what we've just heard. Perhaps I should preface my comments by saying, uh, unlike the rest of my colleagues on the panel, I'm not an expert on on finance, although I should quickly hasten to say in front of the Vice-Chancellor, I can uh, understand finance as I'm charged with the social (laughs) science divisionals budget. Um, But I'm a social anthropologist who specializes on Japan, and there are some resonances in what George Soros said just now and in what is written. Which simply strike with both anthropologists and those who work on Japan, but particularly I'd like to talk about uh, the relationship between what George Soros is thinking and social science uh, more broadly and his concept of reflexivity. Um, social science, as many of you will be aware, and I'm talking about social science here in the broadest sense of everything from law through to archaeology, psychology through uh, to business studies, is essentially the relationship of the study between uh, the person and society. And the key question since the European Enlightenment, essentially, has been this relationship between how people construct the world, the society around them, uh, through ritual and symbolic systems, what George Soros uh, called just now the manipulative function, and how those societies and worlds that they've constructed come to constrain their activity, what he called the, the cognitive function. And the key problem uh, for social scientists in whatever field has been to understand what is meant by a person in a particular space or a particular time, uh, what anthropologists have called the study of personhood, and what is defined as a society in a particular space at a particular time, since these, as we all know, are ever-changing and highly contestable social uh, constructions. So an anthropologist would take uh, as a given as we just uh, we were hearing from the premise that the, 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 what we call the person is divided between a self or an ego, which should be understood as being separate from uh, the persona or the role that that person is performing in a society. And many of you will be familiar with the famous work of Marcel Mauss, the category of the person, who talks about the conflation of the ego and the persona into the concept of the individual which lies at the heart of a lot of current economic thinking, as of being a relatively recent uh, invention. Indeed, the philosopher Alan McFarlane relates it to the development of proto-capitalism in certain Western uh, societies. Now, for me, what I found fascinating about George Soros' ideas, of course, is that the resonances are quite strong with much of the literature in the 1980s about the development of the Japanese capitalist um, system which seem to be based on very different ideas of the person and the relationship between people. From capitalist systems that had developed uh, in the West and there was a big literature on all the uh, newsstands in airports in the 1980s trying to explain the basis of this different form of capitalism and why it worked and what the underlying assumptions were and as you'll know because many of you would have read it it would tell you that a Japanese word for different was the same as the Japanese word for wrong, that a Japanese word for the individual was the same as the Japanese word for selfishness and that the idea of rights in Japan was a relatively underdeveloped uh, concept. Uh, one of my favorite books talked about how uh, in Japanese society, no, in, in Western society, people were considered to be mature when they could do things by themselves, and how in Japan nobody was considered to be mature until they realized they could do nothing uh, by themselves, that they were dependent uh, on other people in order to make social interactions uh, work. Now, what's interesting, and this is why I think George Soros' ideas are so important, that these very different assumptions about the person or what constitutes personhood leads to very different ideas about economic uh, exchange. The Japanese model, we were told at the time, uh, was based on very long-term, effective relationships that believed that people were basically good. They weren't self-maximizing individuals who were looking always for the short-term rational uh, return. People in Japan didn't have contracts. There was a society that was based on an idea of tract, and the workplace of an ideology was seen as a kind of extended uh, family. So anthropologists have taken it for granted for a long time that in societies, uh, the economic system should not be seen as separate from other spheres uh, of life, but deeply embedded in it, in the religious system, the kinship system, the political system, and the cultural system. The idea of being an economist Uh, Looking at the economy as something quite separate from these other spheres would be considered as rather strange and In many ways I would suggest that some of the triumphalism that uh, I found in some of the Western literature Following the problems in the Japanese and the other tiger economies in the 1990s was because in a sense It it shouldn't have worked because it didn't follow the normal economic (coughs) models so what I take from George Soros's comments and very interesting ideas not is that one economic model is better than another economic model rather that we need to be to use his word reflexive about our underlying assumptions about the very nature of what it means to be human and of the nature of human exchange when we want to make predictions about economics and economic uh, functions in many ways i see this as a kind of a clarion call for economists to if you like, come back to the mainstream of social science and to eschew the models of natural sciences. He uses a wonderful expression in one of his papers of physics, envy, that uh, social scientists want to be like the natural scientists. They want to measure themselves. And he's asking us to come back and try and look at the social context in which economic structures actually develop and work and evolve. And, of course, as head of the social sciences division in Oxford, I think this is a wonderful (laughs) message, and I wish he was here, to he could hear that at the moment. I'm looking forward to him arriving in a few minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Roger. (laughs) We
0: we will make sure that uh, that conversation (laughs) happens with uh, with George, and uh, I think it's absolutely... Uh, reflective of his ideas, uh, Professor David Soskis is research professor at Duke University, uh, an interesting economist who was a professor of economics in London. Now is has is a professor of political science, uh, has written uh, with Wendy Carlin recently uh, really excellent macroeconomic introductory uh, textbooks or well not so introductory uh, textbooks, and has worked in many areas of economics and political science. Uh, it, Is now at Nuffield College, we're fortunate to have him in Oxford, and is extremely well placed to think about the relationship between economics uh, and politics and George Soros's ideas.
3: Thank you very much. Um, I I share a great many uh, of the thoughts which Roger Goodman so uh, elegantly pointed out. Um, but I want to, and I want to, as it, as it were, go from, the, from many of those things to the notion that the financial crisis has exposed a crisis in the social sciences, or at least exposed a major problem, which has probably been in the social sciences for a long time. And this is despite the great advances which have been made in the last 30 years in the, uh, in the social sciences, in economics, political science, um, and in sociology. But the major problem comes out of that, because as I see it, there is a real absence of well-grounded, big-picture analyses uh, of major uh, of major events, including obviously the the financial crisis, and an analysis which can integrate different social scientific uh, disciplines. Now there are, there, are, there are there are there are marvelous exceptions to this. I, I do. I mean, whatever we may think about Paul Krugman, I think he's a tremendous uh, example of someone who can do this. I think. Uh, late and very much lamented Oxford economist Andrew Glynn was another person who could make these very big pictures become, become clear to us. But we seem to have lost this ability. I'm not sure whether we ever had it, but I sort of imagine that in the 50s and 60s uh, we could think in this sort of, in this sort of way. Uh, and it's clear that part of the reason why we've lost it has been because of the way research is now done. So I, I should say the, the, the huge advice, I'm, I'm not attacking uh, social, social science research. My own, my own research is very dependent, dependent on it. But, <laughs> uh, but it has been a price of the way in which research is now done. That has become increasingly specialized and technical. It's much harder to talk across boundaries of disciplines, even of sub-disciplines. One might even, uh, one might even use very, this very interesting idea that Mr. Soros has in his, um, in his, in his lecture that markets can drive fundamentals. The idea being, uh, I take it that that everybody in a market can acquire a belief about what they see as a fundamental, and that belief, then, as he puts it, eliminates disequilibria between prices and prices and fundamentals. Um, PP is a uh, PP uh, offers a. Uh, a good example, if one looks at it historically, as to, as to how the different social sciences have, in many ways, moved away from each other. Indeed, bits and pieces of, the social, of, of economics, particularly, or particularly political science, have themselves, uh, to some extent, fragmented. When, when PP was set up in the early 1920s, it was initially called Modern Greats, and the idea was that you would have a, uh, you'd give people tools of analyzing holistically their own society, of looking at e- economics and, and politics and philosophy in the same sort of way as people who did greats uh, were supposed to have the holistic tools to look at classical civilization, to look at the at the history, the philosophy... Keep uh, uh, the mic. At the history, the philosophy, the literature, uh, even, the, um, the, even the law of, of, of classical societies. We've clearly, in PPE, which, which I taught for many, many years uh, in UNIV, we've clearly moved away from, from that uh, capacity of really integrating... The different parts of the subject. I, I, I did, a, I did a, a class recently on, on, uh, with, um, with a group of political science graduate students, looking at the crisis and, and asking whether we could, whether we could, how we would analyze the crisis. And when I thought about it beforehand, and when we talked about it. It was clear that there were a whole number of different aspects of the academy which we needed to know about. We needed to know about how modern political systems worked and how they'd evolved. We needed to know about how regulation, deregulation worked and why it was that in the American political system, deregulation could be pushed at a certain point but couldn't have been pushed beforehand. We needed to know about modern macroeconomics, certainly, and modern international macroeconomics. Uh, we needed to know about how financial systems worked, how financial crises actually actually imploded in the, way in, which they, in the way in which they did. And above all, we needed to have a rather good knowledge of economic history over quite a long period uh, through, the, through, the, through the 20th century. Now, very, very few people learn that as a matter of course in the way in which they're educated nowadays. And that, I think, has led to a situation where we no longer have, if we ever did have, a capacity for putting things together. And uh, and I believe that this is something we should be thinking in terms of.
0: Great. Thanks very much, David. (laughs) try and get you back to economics. Uh, Paul Beaudry, Professor Paul Beaudry, is a recent arrival in Oxford. Uh, We managed to recruit him uh, to our economics department from the uh, uh, Canadian Central Bank and the University of British Columbia. Uh, He's also at All Souls, and he's one of uh, the recent recruits to Oxford that has a very broad understanding of economics. So, Paul, you have the floor. (laughs)
4: Thank you. Uh, Well, it's certainly a pleasure being on this panel, and I took uh, part of the role of this panel to uh, try to favor some discussion and kind of maybe some controversy. So I'm going to try to emphasize a few things that also, I think, a little bit different with uh, Mr. Soros. So I'll try to say where I think he's viewing. I'm going to concentrate a lot on the view of the crisis and view in economics in general. Um, now at the same time, I do want to say that I actually agree with a lot of the, uh, the aspects that uh, Mr. Soros is kind of putting forward. Certainly it's a great time to be thinking kind of deeply about the, the issues in economics of rethinking our, our system. I also think he has a very good view, and he didn't get to hear him on this, but thinking about how we have boom and bust cycles, how bubbles form, talks about this notion of reflexivity how our actions often hide kind of certain realities, and this actually uh, generates these bubbles where we can't understand really what's happening because our actions actually hide the things behind it and kind of make it self-fulfilling. Uh, these are um, uh, very interesting ideas. I'd even even go further in this whole idea of booms and busts. I think booms and busts are very... It's not only a natural part of our, uh, our economy, they're actually almost inevitable part. And I think here, again, uh, noticing this notion of availability or kind of unknowns, you have to remember what's happening, you know, a market economy is always kind of going forward and testing new technologies and looking at new markets. And that means we're going in uncharted waters. We're going to towards the unknown. And in that type of environment, it shouldn't be too surprising that most booms that are often started by some idea or something in the background that's moving, then end up by a bus. Because it's actually only by seeing the bus that we learn these limits of these new opportunities. Now, these are all ideas that um, uh, Mr. Soros is trying to kind of uh, promote and kind of lead us to think. But I arrived to slightly different conclusions than him, and those are things I'm going to try to uh, slightly emphasize, just making uh, this whole debate uh, going here. And here I kind of slightly differ on the, the way we might want to think about policy from that on, and really noticing what are the, uh, the main failures of uh, economics as a, as a kind of body of knowledge in this whole, uh, this whole crisis. So let me start with policy front. And I think here in terms of the policy front, it's kind of helpful to make a caricature of kind of thinking about two policy frameworks that we might favor as we go forward from here. And one, we can think about it as uh, real macro stability. Now, we might think of real macro stability as actually being policy that tries to aim at mitigating this kind of boom-bust cycle that we see in the, in the market economy. And um, we could think about that as putting it in, like mandates of central banks, where this is something that they'd uh, they should be looking to do. And this contrast with the current view in most central banks that is much more kind of nominal stability. It's inflation stability, that's the, the focus. And so that's kind of one aspect we can think. Maybe looking forward we should be thinking about uh, real macro stability. On the other hand, there's this notion of financial stability. And this is more of a, a more uh, constrained notion which is looking to try to understand and organize our financial system to stop getting it to kind of concentrate risk in certain areas and that we get blow ups and that we need bailouts. And these are, both these policies would kind of, you know, interact and help each other. If we help uh, this real macro stability, we would help financial stability and back and forth. But there are conceptually different, uh, different frameworks. And if I understand um, Mr. Soros's views on this, he kind of favors kind of going, I'd call it the broader sense of saying, let's favor this real macro uh, stability aspect. And I'm a bit in the camp of saying, oh, maybe it's really we want to concentrate on this financial stability. And to try to make the contrast in where my views come from, I think it's very important to contrast this, uh, this recent boom and bust with the one that kind of the tech boom and bust. Okay, So if we go back in the 90s and the early 2000s, we actually had another big boom and bust cycle. It was a very, uh, it was a very huge cycle. Um, and um, now when we look back, was it a bad outcome? Well, if you look overall of that whole boom and bust of tech, it's hard to kind of see it as the whole thing as being bad. We went through a period where we developed new technologies. We had quite a high, high growth. Unemployment went down. Actually, inequality went down for one of the rare uh, times in the last uh, 20, 30 years. Now, it did finish with a uh, huge increase in unemployment, or a wide increase, not, not nearly as big as this time. Um, and we can all, you know, when we look at that, we could say, well, that not that a problem? We should be attacking it. Well, you think, well, maybe if we would have stopped the boom earlier, what would we have gotten? Maybe just gotten unemployment earlier. What this special aspect of that boom and bust, it's not that there was any rationale. it wasn't what there was kind of uh, over uh, optimistic expectations. What's good about that, that period is those that wanted to take risks, took risk but actually paid the price of it. This was a boom and bust that was financed by equity. So people that had money kind of took a chance, and when they lost, they lost, and we actually had to, through that process. And that, I think, is really a good reflection of kind of how an open society tries to, and these are ideas that are important to Mr. Sof, brings in people that have these divergent views and allows them to work, but they actually took responsibility. When we look at this, uh, this more recent case, the housing boom and bust, um, we're really in a, in a different situation. Now, if we thought about this housing boom and bust, if it would have been financed by equity, would be discussing this today? Probably not. We'd still have a, probably had a recession. We'd had houses prices going up, people being over-optimistic, but it was only people that actually had the money that were kind of uh, investing in it. It would have looked a lot like the tech boom and bust, and we would have had, you know, a downturn. It wouldn't have looked anything as bad as what, uh, what things look like now. So it's all about financing, that's really the, the main difficulty. And that's why I think the, the main issue when we're looking forward is really uh, in terms of a policy paradigm that really focuses on thinking about how you improve financial market stability. Now this brings me to the second issue. Where did the economic profession get it so wrong in this part? And again here I actually agree with a, a lot of um, Mr. Soros's view on the economic profession pushed kind of notions that are kind of called rational expectation and efficient markets way beyond kind of a reasonable sense. It really became absurd. However, that's not really where I think the the biggest errors of the profession were. This is not where it was lacking uh, the most. It's really, again, it's, you know, when I look back, you know, when you think about it that way, it kind of emphasizes like this bubble view. And I don't think the way of thinking of this period was no one was seeing that a bubble was possibly building on housing. I I spent a lot of time over this Whole period at you know central banks uh, around the world and almost everywhere i went people would be talking about this potential bubble kind of building and how but where everyone or almost everyone missed out is figuring out how costly the bursting of this bubble would be it's not the bubble itself was the problem it's the bursting of it it's the misunderstanding of how the financial markets were working and here we really have a dichotomy when we're talking about the social sciences not being tied together even within economics there's kind of this this lack of what, again, Mr. Soros might call reflexivity between macroeconomics and finance. In macroeconomics, the notion of banking and financial intermediation hardly plays a role. It's almost like this little veal. It's it's almost crazy when you see how it's done. And at the other extreme, in finance, we have all this teaching of finance without any implication of what it's doing to the macroeconomy and how there's any interaction between the two. And these kind of areas have just been divided up and this has to be brought in. So when I'm thinking about a paradigm change in the future, we have to be thinking about how we're going to move forward. And I think we shouldn't only be looking, kind of, at least within economics, at trying to explain bubbles. I think that's actually the easy part. We have a lot of things like behavioral economics that give us tools. There's ways of learning. There's lots of aspects there that we can move forward. What is really is needed in any paradigm shift is a really rethinking about what the financial market's doing. What kind of role is it doing, you know, for society? What actually? Why has it grown so much? Why do we have all this interconnectedness? Why does it happen so often that it concentrates risk at certain places? These are all questions that may be surprising for non-economists. We don't actually have answers to this in economics, and I think that's where we should be going.
0: Great. Thank you very much, and uh, it's great to hear someone from running the mainstream of uh, our economics department uh, having such broad views. Uh, Anatol Kolecki is uh, a fascinating uh, journalist. He's written very, very widely on the topic. He's in the pillar of the establishment, the Times newspaper, uh, but his views aren't always uh, that orthodox, and I'm delighted to have him here. He's worked very closely with George Soros and uh, has many, many insights into his work.
5: Uh, Thank you very much. Well, I agree very much with, uh, well, actually, pretty much everything that others have said, but uh, particularly with what uh, Professor Baudry was saying about the inevitability of booms and busts uh, in financial markets, and in economies more generally, and actually in their desirability. Uh, Booms and busts are an evolutionary process. Uh, They are are a contributor to the process of creative destruction, which, uh, of course, people like Schumpeter have written about a lot in the micro um, sense in the structure of industries and so on. But one of the things that intrigues me is that uh, neither economics nor uh, economic history as an intellectual discipline, has really thought about the same concept of creative destruction at the politico-economic, at the societal level, because the economic system itself is subject to an evolutionary process whereby it changes, not quite with the same frequency as individual industries, not on an annual or even a decadal timescale, but over the period of let's say 300 years of existence of market capitalism, the system itself has changed as a result of political and economic crises and has emerged from each of these crises as a system that is still recognizably a capitalist market system, but one that is very, very different from the one that went before. Uh, And uh, as I'm uh, very much an applied guy as as, as Ian said. I've spent most of my career as a journalist and now actually I make a fairly decent living Uh, as an economist very much in financial markets working for institutions uh, uh, including in the past um, Soros fund management. uh, What I'm going to do is take advantage of this opportunity to be here in Oxford and not talk about any of these applied financial issues, but talk about the uh, broader intellectual and historical aspects on which of course uh, I'm not expert. Uh, Now, it strikes me that these ideas of reflexivity and fallibility, as George said, are very relevant uh, at the level not just of financial miving force of this evolution in the political economy of capitalism, which has now been going on for 300 years. but where I slightly disagree with George is that he, he stresses that perfect knowledge, including perfect knowledge about the future, is a critical assumption of equilibrium economics, which it obviously is. Uh, but I think he tends to think that it's a critical assumption of all forms of market economics or capitalist economists, which it really isn't. Uh, the idea of perfect equilibrium and perfect knowledge, I think, was very much the kind of mechanistic ultra-rationalistic thinking that emerged in the early part of the 20th century uh, and led ultimately to the pathological exaggerations, which George mentioned, of capitalism, fascism, both ultra-rationalist mechanistic views of the world. Uh, But it also led, uh, in a somewhat more benign and successful way, to the absolutism of market economics, the market fundamentalism that I think George was actually the man who coined that term uh, in the 1990s. uh, Perfect market economics certainly depends on perfect knowledge, but we've got to recognize that market fundamentalism is not the only, or certainly not the most plausible, and not the only possible theory of capitalism. And what I just want to say very briefly is that it strikes me that really uh, capitalism does not depend on perfect information at all. In fact, the whole point of markets, as both Keynes and Hayek in their opposite way um, emphasized, is to deal with the imperfection of knowledge, to deal with unpredictability and ignorance in a way that is going to be far more successful because it's empirical and subject to constant correction than any rationalistic system, such as central planning. Uh, The reason that um, Hayek got so excited about the market system was because, he uh, and, and, and was so opposed to the neoclassical economics was be- that was becoming dominant is that he could see by the 1940s that actually the neoclassical economics of perfect market markets was actually a better argument for central planning than it was for market economics. Because if you had perfect knowledge, then actually an infinitely wise central planner with with access to computing power, which at that time seemed almost inconceivable, but now each of us has on our our mobile phone, could actually do a better job than any market system. So that's why he was opposed. Keynes was opposed for for opposite, but ultimately converging reasons. And it strikes me that. what we should—the the lesson we should draw from the current crisis, or the crisis that's, that's recently occurred—is that capitalism, I said, as I said, is a politico-economic system which has gone through a number of these crises since it really was set up in the uh, early 18th century. I like to put the this founding date of capitalism. Is when it, it's one—it's—it's—it's it's actually one can be quite precise about it. I think it's 1776, which happens to be the date not only of. Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, but also of the Declaration of Independence in the United States. They came within three months of each other, and that was the creation of the first self-consciously bourgeois capitalist democratic society um, in existence. So we've had, so that was the initial phase of capitalism, but that of phase of capitalism was actually itself created in a crisis, both an economic and a political crisis, which, of course, began with the American Civil War, the French Revolution, and continued in you know, a you know, world of incredible turmoil, really, until the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. And then you had a period of stability of classical capitalism, which I would say is the first phase of genuine capitalism. Uh, shall I interrupt, or shall I finish? Uh, Why do you finish, the, and then, then we'll, fin- we'll, give, okay. we'll <laughs> get to so sort so, of So you so had this marvelous <laughs> period of stability. <laughs> Then you had another crisis of capitalism, at least as profound as the other one, from 1914, 1917 onwards through the Great Depression. And you had the reinvention of a new economic theory. Uh, And what's crucial is that it wasn't just society that changed completely in the 1930s. Economic theory also changed at the same time. And the two, in a very reflexive way, went together. You could not have a a complete change in political economy without a change in the theoretical underpinnings. So that is what I would call the second phase of capitalism from the 1930s. But that itself, as Marx predicted, fell victim to its own contradictions, and by the 1970s, that phase collapsed. And you had another crisis, both of political economy and of economic theory, and the emergence from the late 70s onwards of the market fundamentalist society and the market fundamentalist economic theory. Now, what strikes me is, is that we may now be in the fourth of these crises of capitalist political economy and capitalist economics. And in order to move beyond this crisis and move to the next stage, we need a new way of looking at the world intellectually just as much as we need a new form of regulation, new uh, political uh, balance in the markets. And I think that's the, the, the phase that, that we're at. Uh, and in order to develop this new approach, we need precisely the qualities that Professor Soskis mentioned, uh, an open-mindedness about different theories within economics, a multidisciplinary approach which brings back history, anthropology, uh, financial markets, uh, the experience of financiers back into the mainstream of economics, and a variety of methodologies within economics itself, which recognize, which recognize not just mathematical modeling, which by its very nature makes it impossible to deal with the sort of issues that George has been talking about, because the whole point of mathematics in any discipline is to ensure logical consistency throughout. That is the one thing that mathematics achieves. It, makes sure, it ensures that your model is logically consistent. If you're dealing with a world which is inherently not logically consistent, mathematical models are always, at some level, going to lead you astray. So these are the things that need to be brought together, uh, which is part of the reason why, about a year ago, I started talking to George about the need to give this process a push to create some kind of uh, New uh, institution or new funding mechanism to promote uh, economic ideas. And I'm very glad to say that George has now taken this up. Uh, the Institute for New Economic Thinking is, ha- has been set up. It's going to be launched in April. And I think this is exactly the time when we need it, both for intellectual reasons and for political reasons around the world.
0: Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, we're delighted that, uh, at least uh, for the, the short term, our uncertainty has been resolved and uh, the peace we've allowed uh, uh, Mr. Soros in and that he's joined us, and I'd like to invite the Vice-Chancellor to introduce him.
6: Thank you very much, Ian, and you could just hear the, uh, the deep breath of relief on the stage when our distinguished guest walked through the door. And ladies and gentlemen, my name is Andrew Hamilton. I'm the new Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford and it's my enormous pleasure to welcome today to Oxford a man who needs little introduction here or indeed anywhere else. Notwithstanding that fact, I am not going to let him escape hearing a few words about himself and the importance that he has had to this university and to open society everywhere george soros is both chairman of soros fund management and the founder of the open society institute it is through his philanthropic activities that oxford came to know him and he came to know oxford mr soros came to the united kingdom from his native country of hungary and graduated in 1952 from the London School of Economics. It was at the LSE that he became acquainted with the theories of Karl Popper, whose work on the open society, in contrast to the regimes from which he had emigrated, that work had a profound influence on his own intellectual development. From the UK, Mr. Soros emigrated to the United States, becoming one of the most successful investors in the world, a status that has permitted his enormous range of philanthropic activity since. In 1993, Mr. Soros founded the Open Society Institute, but really it was his funding of the Soros Scholars in the 1980s, scholars drawn from Hungary, Poland, and the Soviet Union, that led to his induction as a founding member of the Chancellor's Court of Benefactors and the award of an honorary DCL from Oxford in 1990. The Soros scholarships have since been transformed into the Open Society Institute and Chevening scholarships, which today bring many talented students from Eastern Europe and the countries of the former Soviet Union to Oxford and to other leading UK universities. Oxford currently has nine master students and 10 visiting DPhil students funded by this scheme. And as many here will know, the Open Society Institute aims to build vibrant democracies where none exist through a range of activities, including education at all levels, economic reform, human rights, media and communication, public health, and arts and culture. The emphasis of these activities clearly differs depending upon the areas of the world in which they seek to address problems. Most recently, for example, the OSI has worked in Nigeria with the intention of preventing the spread of tuberculosis and HIV-AIDS. So the threats to an open and free society change very much in nature between decades and continents. But what is constant is the commitment of Mr. Soros to combating them, and his determination to transcend the limitations imposed by international institutions and national governments. Mr. Soros, it's a great pleasure to be able to welcome you back to a fog-bound United Kingdom and to a warm reception from a university that has benefited enormously from your vision for how society throughout the world should be structured and run. I note, sir, that when you were admitted to your honorary degree on the 20th of June 1990, the Chancellor of Oxford University hailed you, and I quote, as a perceptive philosopher, most munificent benefactor of learning, born in Central Europe, bringer of education on an expanding scale to Europe's people. You are certainly that. On that occasion, the public orator at Oxford, in a flourish of what makes Oxford such a unique institution, quoted Aeschylus to the members of congregation assembled here in the magnificent architecture of the Sheldonian Theatre, and he quoted, Quick as as his word comes action, urging on. Whatever plans his active mind devises. Mr. Soros, the citizens of the world have great cause to be grateful to your active mind. We look forward to hearing from you today. And may your active mind clear the fog. under which the rest of us labor, and I have to say you have labored this morning. And I'd like to invite you to the podium to address us.
1: Well, uh, my apologies for being late. Uh, Actually, I was quite lucky because it could land in in Bristol, so I I could at least uh, join you now. Uh, uh, And uh, I just mentioned that uh, uh, when uh, when I was given the doctorate, uh, honorary doctorate, uh, I I suggested that I should be described as a, a financial, philosophical, and philanthropic speculator. (laughs) But I wasn't taken up on that. Uh, (laughs) Now, as Anatole mentioned, I am the sponsor of the new uh, Institute for New Economic Thinking, but I'm also a a protagonist, uh, and I'm definitely here in my capacity as a protagonist. And maybe just uh, um, to uh, very, very briefly, uh, I would sum up, uh, my conceptual framework that I put forward, which is which extends beyond economics, uh, it's, a, it's a I would say more uh, a broader uh, um, uh, uh, view of the world, and at the most uh, I would put it on four four levels of abstraction. The most abstract level, I argue that uh, human situations, human events, are, have a different structure from natural uh, phenomena. And of course, as a consequence of that, uh, social sciences uh, face a different kind of problem uh, from a f- uh, set of problems uh, than the natural sciences. Uh, in, uh, in the case of natural, ph- and the difference between the two is the role of thinking, the role that the think, thinking plays. In the case of natural phenomena, it only has one function, which, are, which I call the cognitive function. We try to understand uh, those events, and because there is only that one function, actually we do quite a, quite well in in the, in the in the field of natural science. Um, in in human affairs. Thinking play, plays another role as well. On the one hand, you have the cognitive role where you try to understand events and uh, in, 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 but you also uh, um, have a participating or manipulative uh, role uh, of trying to change events uh, naturally to your advantage and these two functions interfere with each other because in one in the cognitive function the situation is that you want to understand is supposed to be given in the in the uh, manipulative function it's your will uh, that is given uh, <clears throat> and because the, if, when both functions work at the same time actually nothing is given because the 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 uh, uh, independent of, uh, 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 factor in, the, in one function is the dependent one on, uh, in the other. So both are dependent, and, uh, and that is the limitation on, as a result, neither function uh, gives you determinate results. Uh, and and uh, that has uh, very uh, far-reaching uh, consequences. So that's the most. Uh, so they've got this: the the manipulative function and the and the uh, uh, the um, uh, c- cognitive function and the interference between the two. I call reflexivity. And reflexivity. Uh, leads to feedback uh, <clears throat> and the feedback can be either positive or negative um, uh, if, you, if, if the feedback is negative the your understanding of, of the world is corrected and and eventually uh, your understanding and the actual situation that you try to understand, you, get, you can get quite close to it. But when you have a positive feedback, then your misconceptions about the world actually change the world. And, and uh, this positive feedback can get quite far, uh, your, your thinking can get f- quite far removed from reality. Uh, now, this has then at the second level of abstraction uh, very interesting applications in the fina- in the financial markets, uh, <clears throat> where and the the um, uh, my explanation of how financial markets works works quite different from the efficient market theory, which is based on the uh, on the um, well the the. Um, uh, the assumption of, of, of uh, 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 rationality. But here <coughs> you have a, 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 a situation where when you have ne- a negative feedback, you can, can, uh, you can actually come quite close to an equilibrium. But when you have a positive feedback, you have a dynamic disequilibrium. And that um, <clears throat> brings me to the third level of abstraction, which is the theory of bubbles, because when you have that uh, that uh, uh, positive feedback, then you have a, um, a, a situation where um, um, <coughs> you, events. I mean the the uh, the. Um, <coughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, I'm not quite up to my. Uh, at any, rate, uh, 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 um, you, you you have this situation where you, you have uh, bubbles have basically two components. You have a a um, a um, uh, a trend and uh, that, uh, that actually prevails in reality, and you have a, a perception or a misconception with regard to that trend, a misinterpretation of, of that trend. And when you have a, foot, a positive feedback, then the feedback reinforces both the trend and the misconception, and that creates a bubble the the most common bubble let's say occurs in a, in in um uh, real estate uh, <clears throat> where the the let's say the prevailing trend is the easy availability of, of 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 credit and the effect of that is that it 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 uh, reinforces a rise in the price of 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 uh, the real estate uh, and uh, be, uh, because uh, you, the uh, ra- prices are rising, the uh, willingness to lend is also reinforced. So, uh, credit standards are, are relaxed uh, and it, it reinforces it. Now, the misconception is, and it keeps on recurring, that the value of the property is independent of the willingness to lend. So you're willing to lend, let's say, X percent or so on. And actually, uh, when you have rising prices, you may be willing to lend even more. And that's how the uh, both the, tr- the trend uh, is reinforced and the misconception uh, until the the situation becomes un- untenable and you have a reversal and at that time the The, um, um, the you have a uh, Actually credit is at its maximum extension and As values fall you then have forced sales which then Accelerates the decline so a, a typical bubble has an asymmetric shape It rises slowly and then when when it's reversed it's quite rapid, it's a crash. That's the simplest bubble. Uh, And then uh, I proposed a specific hypothesis about the financial crisis that we have just uh, been through uh, and I call it a super bubble. And that super bubble is a very interesting one because the... um, it has the, the uh, underlying trend, which is an ever-increasing uh, um, use of credit and leverage. And a, uh, a misconception, which is what I call market fundamentalism, namely that markets tend towards equilibrium and, and, and uh, correct them, their excesses and revert to, to, to equilibrium. Uh, and. Uh, because that's a misconception, uh, the um, deregulation uh, generates financial crises. and when a financial crisis occurs, the authorities step in to save the, the, uh, uh, to prevent uh, the financial disturbance, the uh, uh, default of a bank or uh, to, to interfere with the economy. And what they, what they do, of course, is that they, incre- they make credit more easily available uh, uh, so that it reinforces the, uh, uh, the ever-increasing use of credit. Uh, but it also reinforces, or it has reinforced, the, the mistaken belief that markets tend towards equilibrium because it wasn't the markets that have uh, prevented a, a, a disaster, but the intervention of the authorities. So it's really the, the play It's really the, the interplay between markets, and the regulators that creates the super bubble, it has, has created uh, the super bubble. Um, and of course, both markets and re- regulators uh, work with misconceptions. Um, <clears throat> and that—that that is the the my explanation of as, as, uh, the how a series of. A uh, financial crisis, um, where the authorities managed to protect us from serious consequences in the economy, uh, have led to this tremendous expansion of credit, and when the collapse came, it then was that much, that much uh, bigger. Now we are at a very interesting point, because effectively. When Lehman Brothers uh, uh, failed, the markets really did collapse. There was a week when one market after another really stopped functioning and uh, Lehman Brothers went broke on Monday. And by Friday, uh, the the authorities put uh, the financial system on artificial life support and effectively guaranteed all financial institutions that are systemically important uh, against, uh, uh, that they will not fail. Uh, And in fact, they replaced the the credit that has collapsed with the only source of credit that, that was still credible which was the credit of the state. And of course, there were some countries where that uh, guarantee uh, was not so credible uh, and their capital uh, started to flee. And that's why, for instance, Eastern Europe uh, and uh, and there was a a small financial crash in Brazil and so on. That's when the periphery countries of the global system were affected by a a financial crisis that originated at the center of the... the, uh, And so, uh, uh, um, effectively, uh, there's been an an almost unlimited injection uh, of uh, uh, liquidity into the markets, uh, quantitative easing. Now, what's, where do we go from here? This is because uh, it was the, absolutely the right thing to do, uh, uh, because without it we would have ended in a depression, uh, as in the 1930s, and a collapse of the financial system. Uh, <clears throat> and, and in fact, uh, when you let's say a car skids you have to first turn the wheel in the same direction as the skid is before you can correct it. So it's a a delicate maneuver which has two steps. And this was the first step, which is in in fact uh, uh, making credit available. Now we are facing, how are we going to do the the second step? Um, And it's very interesting that the the, the uh, maneuver was successful. The financial markets have recovered; uh, they have stabilized. <coughs> the various risk premiums have shrunk, and the, the whole collapse now looks like a, a nightmare. Just uh, and and uh, uh, many people in financial markets um, would like to see it as a bad dream and forget about it. Uh, And so there is this sort of revival of what the animal spirits, and the question is, will we actually learn something uh, from this crisis, or do we try to put Humpty Dumpty together again? Um, I think we can make an attempt but I I don't think it can be done, because uh, we have globalized financial markets on false premises. Namely, that markets don't need to be regulated. It was a very successful uh, uh, market uh, uh, fundamentalist uh, 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 enterprise uh, because it was irresistible because since um, capital is absolutely essential. Financial capital is assen- absolutely <laughs> essential. Once the, uh, the main players, basically the United Kingdom and, well, the uh, uh, United States and the United Kingdom, uh, started to deregulate and globalize, the rest of the world had to follow. So it was irresistible. And we, we, in fact, have had a truly globalized financial markets, um, but deregulated markets. Um, now we've learned that this is unsound. I mean, it's a lesson that has cost us several trillions of dollars or sterling, whichever currency you, li- you like to look, uh, look at. Um, and um, <coughs> if we want to have global, global markets, we will need global regulations. Uh, this is the big challenge, which is, I'm afraid I'm, uh, that we may not be able to meet. Because the, the process doesn't work in reverse because basically the regulations remained national. And when the banking system had to be be, uh, saved, it had to be done on a national level. And in Europe in particular, it was basically uh, uh, Angela Merkel of Germany who said it has to be done on a national basis. It couldn't be done uh, on on a uh, Europe-wide basis. So, of course, national uh, regulators have national interests, and those interests don't coincide. Uh, And therefore, the the challenge of having global regulations with uniform standards uh, is is going to be very difficult uh, to achieve. Now, uh, at the same time, you have the um, emergence of an alternative. I I would call the system that collapsed international capitalism, the Washington Consensus. Uh, But there is an alternative that is emerging, uh, and that I call that state capitalism, uh, represented by China in a very successful way by Russia, In a pretty unsuccessful way, Uh, but that's an alternative. And because the Chinese uh, alternative is, in fact, very successful, unless we we, uh, 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 manage to have global regulations and uh, and reform the global financial system, which involves also uh, um, uh, dealing with the developing a mechanism to deal with imbalances. So it's not just regulations, but also uh, uh, the currency system that needs to be reformed. Uh, The, I think the state and bilateral uh, uh, system is going to come increasingly uh, uh, to the fore. Now, of course, China is part of uh, and so is Russia, part of the international of, of the International Monetary Fund, but they have they are not really a, 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 a significant parts. They don't they don't have the kind of representation. I'm talking now of China, not Russia, uh, that they would be entitled to. So. while they are members and pay their dues and do do all the things that they are supposed to as members, the real uh, thrust is a bilateral thrust. So, for instance, I don't see uh, uh, renminbi replacing the dollar as as the international currency. The dollar will remain the main international currency, but the renminbi will be used increasingly in bilateral uh, uh, transactions, and capital accounts will remain uh, um, uh, regulated. So that's the alternative uh, uh, that that may well be the way things are going to go. So I think that probably uh, gives you an idea of the, the, uh, let's say, the conceptual framework that, uh, that, uh, that I am proposing, and it has far-reaching implications as far as, as regulations are concerned and many other things. So I think that might give you this uh, uh, just a broad uh, outline. Thank you.